Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to speak with Jeffrey Akamoto. He is the American representative to the International Monetary Fund, the first deputy managing director, the seat of John Lipsky, of David Lipton and others over the recent years. And we're thrilled that Mr. Akamoto could join us this morning. Jeffrey, there is a change at the IMF, and that will be the language of your regional economic outlook for the Asia-Pacific region, the next time it's published. I think of the fancy title for Hong Kong, the resident representative for People's Republic of China, Hong Kong's special administrative region. The politics and indeed the reality has changed in Hong Kong. How will the IMF adapt to a new Hong Kong? Thanks, Tom, and it's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, we're still assessing kind of the, the, the broader geopolitical issues that surround uh, the future of Hong Kong and, uh, and the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, but suffice to say that Hong Kong's business model is being challenged by uh, actions that have been taken uh, on both sides here. And I think one thing that's important to remember is that Hong Kong is an important place for the world to, uh, to transact. It's a, an important financial gateway for China, and it's an important financial gateway uh, for the rest of the world. And at some point, uh, people have to balance or figure out how they weigh these two things in their mind as they go forward. The study of leakages and interdependencies of Gita Gopinath is different than you. I think of your term at KPMG as well. How will the Pacific Rim adapt and adjust to an assertive Communist Party in Hong Kong? Does the IMF suggest the simplistic idea that Singapore will pick up business, or can there be economic gain for other nations? This is, you know, this is a chance for uh, firms to decide where they want to do business in light of what's going on. Um, there's, uh, you know, Asia is a big place and there are many, many places where there are also quite a bit of financial activity. The question is going to be which place sets the conditions right for the capital to flow through that jurisdiction. Hong Kong is, has proven itself over time as having uh, a very stable and predictable monetary policy, well-governed financial sector, uh, these kinds of things are, are important for, for fostering uh, this kind of activity in your area, uh, and we'll see if other, other regions decide to compete. I think you know, we, we want a system of competition because that leads over time to uh, best results, obviously. Jeffrey, we're talking about this amid a backdrop of slowing growth in general, uh, malaise, a concern about an acceleration of some of the weakness. And you expect, the IMF expects, that medium and small uh, business bankruptcies could triple to about 12% from 4% currently by the end of this year. What do you hope that policymakers do to stave this off? Right now, we're at a critical stage in the, in the, uh, the, the crisis, which is, we're trying to protect the productive capacity of the, the economy, right? That comes down to two things. One is protecting uh, literally human capital, so protecting people's lives and protecting their health uh, so they can work productively uh, in, uh, in, on the other side of this. And the other is protecting firms that would have otherwise been viable businesses. Um, the challenge is understanding which ones are viable and which ones aren't uh, at this stage in the, in the crisis. And so the type of firm-level support that is being provided, whether it's by uh, the U.S. or European governments or others uh, is absolutely critical uh, and uh, is needed to kind of make sure that businesses that do can see the other side of this don't have to go through a restructuring uh, that is unduly complex and costly. 
Mr. Okamoto, the first time I heard the word macroprudential was from the August John Lipsky standing in the room of the Council on Foreign Relations, and people, to be blunt folks, were scared stiff. It was after the financial crisis. Do we have enough humility right now, sir, of where we are? Your managing director has made it real clear in Bulgarian bluntness the situation we're in. Do we understand the crisis we're in and the risk to our international system? Well, you know, the managing director is good with Bulgarian bluntness. I don't know what that, that gives me. But uh, uh, on, on, the, on the issue of whether we understand what's, what's, what's happening, as this has gone on longer than people expect or initially expected, uh, I think the reality is set in that your policies have to be calibrated for, for the longer haul. Uh, and that means a different type of approach, potentially, than what you were taking in March or April. Um, you know, we're seeing economies having to grapple, for example, with reopening. That's, that's a difficult process. A partial reopening still puts economic and financial strain on the system. Uh, and that you know, is going to need a lot of thought in terms of well, how, how we get through this. At the IMF, you know, this is a question that we're studying quite intensively. We're trying to uh, be responsive to members that are at various stages of reopening in helping them set their policies, you know, in other words, winding down the ones that were, are no longer needed and starting up the new ones uh, that are needed for this juncture. Jeffrey, how should policymakers decide which companies to save and which to let go to bankrupt? It's a, it's a, a million dollar question on, on a, a, you know, on what to, how to sift these, sift through these companies. Some businesses were struggling at the beginning of this, and uh, you know, for all for all uh, for all realities' sake, they're they're not going to make it, or they were never intended to make it, but did benefit from firm support. Um, but what we need to think about is what has structurally changed in the in the context of a pandemic. Certain sectors uh, are simply not going to be uh, as economically viable, uh, given how they, their business model works. If these are places where a lot of people are gathering. If this requires a lot of uh, you know human to human contact, if the business model can't adapt to one that is socially distant and contactless or, or virtual, uh, that that's not a business model that that is likely to survive. Uh, uh, you know through this without a substantial amount of support, the 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 question is is well, how do you bridge them along the way in the most uh, efficient way possible? There are a variety of ways that we're seeing uh, countries do this. Each country is going to have to take its own approach. On one hand, you have this concern about emerging markets and this call for writing down a chunk of the debt so that a lot of corporations and sovereign sovereignties can continue. And on the other hand, you have this call to add on debt to companies that are struggling in order to keep them going and bridge them to the other side. At what point are you talking about zombie companies, about the zombification of uh, corporations around the world and the concern about growth on that in the longer term? Good question. The the uh, one thing I think we have to analytically a analyze, and this is something that you know authorities in, in governments, it, a lot of this will depend on the insolvency regime that's in place uh, in each jurisdiction. But a lot of what you have to think about is if you're a business and you uh, weren't able to produce or as much revenue as you as you were anticipating in January of this year, and now you've had to borrow to bridge your way through this. You now have effective balance sheet. Uh, you, have, you, have, you have a load on your balance sheet that you're going to have to repay at some point, even if that int the, the interest rate on that debt is is zero percent. Um, that's that's cost to you, and your business going forward has a higher cost structure. Uh, so if you're thinking about a higher cost structure and a lower uh, revenue base, um, 
you know, it's you have to take a critical eye to say who who can't tolerate that, even though loans may be available today, you have to take a close look at which firms won't won't survive uh, under under that kind of strength. Jeffrey, just to wrap things up, just finally, yeah. let's finish with Europe. We all watched the economic tragedy unfold after the last economic crisis. We spent 10 years watching the continent compromise their way to mediocrity and suboptimal outcomes again and again and again. Going into a massive weekend this Friday with European leaders, what's the IMF's message? What's your message, Jeffrey, for the Europeans this weekend? I would say keep the eye on the prize. There's, there's uh, obviously a very consequential uh, ECB decision that's forthcoming in just a, in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, it's a big weekend to try and sort through, and, and you know more important than just the the policy issues surrounding um, coronavirus and, and assistance is uh, how Europe is going to sort through uh, questions that affect uh, that affect the, the member countries and and chart a path truly to growth and prosperity. You know, growth isn't going to come uh, in a one shot uh, you know assistance package from from the European authorities. It's going to require a commitment to, uh, you know, long-standing things that we've all understood, right? Which is increasing productivity, improving competitiveness, uh, and uh, and we'll see. We wish the Europeans well as they try to sort through these difficult issues. I think we all do, Jeffrey. Fantastic to hear from you, sir, Jeffrey Okamoto. There, I'm a first deputy managing director. A huge weekend coming up. A real choppy couple of weeks for this equity market is the rotation back on. Let's start the conversation this morning with Julian Emanuel, BTIG Chief Equity and Derivatives Strategist. Julian, great to catch up with you, buddy. Going back to Friday, the equal weight S&P outperforming a market cap weighted S&P. Is this the rotation again or another head fake? No, it's the rotation again with a slight difference here. Okay. The, the problem that we have over the last several months is, is that, that the, the large names uh, in the S&P 500 index have become such an overwhelming percentage of the index that even though on balance the rotation into cyclicals um, you know, and real laggards is likely going to be positive long term, it's definitely a headwind in the near term because you ha- you're in the middle of unwinding uh, a great deal of momentum that's accumulated. Julian, what are you doing right now? I mean, I'm sort of jumping ahead of the conversation here, but what is your action plan for equity investment and trading right now? Right. So, so broadly, in our view, we think that you know, if you look at the S&P 500, you've been in a trading range for really around two months at this point. We actually think that that range continues. Um, but again, we think that the momentum names are going to unwind. So we want to hedge. Uh, the NASDAQ exposure, hedging QQQs, and we want to take some chips off the table and some of the very highest flying names, which we think come earnings season reports, it's really going to be difficult for them to, you know, get any forward price action because the expectations are very high as opposed to some of the more cyclical names. Financials, for example, obviously the reports have been choppy, um, but you've seen better revenue from, from the trading side. But their expected earnings are down over 50% quarter on quarter. So it's really hard to see downside to those numbers. And, you know, consequently, we think those stock prices stabilize as the season moves on. Julian, the high flyers you expect to unwind, does that mean that they are going to decline in a major way? The Facebooks of the world, the Netflixes of the world, perhaps the Twitters of the world, which we're seeing down about 6% ahead of uh, the market open today. Or does that mean they're just going to underperform some of the cyclicals? 
Well, we think you could see NASDAQ come off around 10%. I mean, if you think about it, coming oh. off of 10, coming off 10%, it's really not that much considering that, you know, we, we've moved about 12, 13% higher in the last month alone and off the low, we're up, you know, well over 50%. It, it, it's really in a lot of ways sort of going to blow the froth off the, off the market and, and likely in the long term would be a healthy development. Well, Julian, relative to the move off the bottom, yeah, 10% might not be a lot. But I just wonder, if you get a 10% move lower on the NASDAQ, can you get a move higher on the S&P 500? Just real simple maths, Julian. I struggle to see how that can happen. No, it's not likely going to happen, which is why we think, you know, basically the trading range that's broadly defined uh, 29.65 on on the bottom in the S&P and and the recent highs this week of around uh, 32, 35, 30. 3240, we think that's going to prevail. And depending on the severity of the NASDAQ pullback, you know, you could probe the bottom end of the range in the S&P. What I'm hearing from you, Julian, is some kind of asymmetric risk towards the cyclicals doing better because the bar is so low. Is that a fair characterization of things? Absolutely, John. Talk to me about the VIX curve as well going out into November, because a lot of people think we're going to see some real choppiness coming out of the summer. Well, there's no question about it, but positively, when thinking about the election, you know, the the hedging over the election term has already caused the VIX curve to bulge, as well as skew in options. You know, the price of downside puts versus upside calls to hedge the election is historically expensive. Generally, when that happens, it sort of means that the worst is priced in and you're likely to get a positive reaction regardless of, of how the election sorts itself out. It's just, you know, the, the lessening of uncertainty, presumably, that we're going to have a winner uh, on the morning of November 4th. Um, but for us, the risk, again, is really more in the near term, looking out towards the end of the summer and Labor Day because of the accumulating pressure in the NASDAQ and because you had this incredible volatility slingshot where the NASDAQ's um, VIX, VXN, it was trading at a discount to the S&P 500 back in April, which was part of right. our bullish call in April. And now it's at a massive premium. That kind of slingshot coupled with Monday. Monday was a very key day. You traded over 2% above the prior day's high in the NASDAQ and closed below the low. That's only happened three times in the history of the NASDAQ. Lower prices were in store on all three occasions. Uh, Julian Emanuel with us, folks. Futures at negative 20, a little bit better tape than we saw an hour ago. Julian, I'm going to ask you a really dumb question, and we do this because I know a young hipster like you only buys ETFs. I remember U.S. Steel (laughs) and Anaconda Copper is a cyclical. What's a cyclical? (laughs) It's probably, for the most part, something that has depressed valuations and is reflecting uh, the continuation of an economic recession, which we don't share. But broadly, you know, it, it's really the, the, the swath of financials, industrials, materials and energy, really broadly speaking. We're speaking with Julian Emanuel of BTIG. I'm still stuck on this idea of the unwind within the big tech names and the fact that this is going to come on the heels of earnings, yet there's been so much disparity between some of the big tech names. And I think this is important to point out. You've got the likes of Netflix and Amazon gaining more than 60 percent, Facebook up only 17 percent. Are the losses going to be concentrated in specific names or will this be a broad based technical unwind that will be uh, something 
timing of, of a correction more broadly? Uh, it's probably going to be elements of both, but we would expect the highest flyers to probably uh, correct the deepest. Uh, you know, and again, because if you think about it, part of, of what's been unusual about the last couple months is public participation in the markets. It's literally at record, however you measure it, particularly in options activity. Um, you know, and again, some of the highest flyers really are where the public is concentrated. And we think not dissimilar to what you sort of saw uh, in February as the market first started coming off. Uh, those names are most vulnerable. This is really important, and it goes back to what Lisa said earlier. Julian, are you looking at the so-called high flyers to to go down on an absolute basis or a relative basis? No, at, at this point, it, it's likely going to be absolute. You know, it's part of our view that uh, NASDAQ can correct 10% from here. <clears throat> Julian, great to catch up with you, sir. Julian Emanuel there of BTIG. Alberto, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Alberto Gallo of Algebris Investments. Alberto, just to get our hands around the guidance, just to refine some words I used a little bit earlier today. QE will carry on. Shortly after QE ends, they may raise interest rates. Long after they've raised interest rates, they'll be reinvesting these maturing assets on the balance sheet. But QE is not going to end for a long, long time, is it, Alberto? Good morning, uh, John and, and Tom. We're looking at central banks getting stuck into quantitative easing into asset purchases for a very, very long period of time. The idea of um, modern monetary theory or you know, prolonged asset purchases for central, from central banks is not a new idea. Uh, we had periods in history looking back, um, not 10 years ago, but much longer, when interest rates were low and governments were trying to use their currencies to fund large deficits. In history, we had many... Uh, recurring episodes where governments essentially debased their currencies. And we are probably about to witness this type of turning point. There is something around uh, $100 trillion in global fixed income, sovereign bonds and investment grade debt that are yielding very close to 1% or zero or below zero. Now, for the first time, we're seeing monetary stimulus unprecedented and fiscal stimulus combined. So a lot of these savings are essentially a sitting duck in the potential picture of a small rise, even a small rise in inflation. What central banks will do is to keep buying because they cannot afford government bond yields and financing costs to rise because there's too much debt. Alberto, this is so important what you're saying, and folks, we've really got to focus on this right now, going back to the research of Paul DeGuar and Charles Weiplotz at the beginning of the financial crisis. Come on, Alberto, it is one big exercise in kicking the can down the road. What is the price to the system of Europe perpetuating that process? This is, the, this is why all investors are a bit uneasy. We have stock markets and a lot of financial instruments hitting record highs, but I have to say there's an eerie mood among market participants, and it, there's the feeling that someone will have to pay the price. So that's, that's the question you're asking. What is the price? The price for a, an unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus, the price for QE infinity could be at some point to have a higher level of inflation. And here I'm going to go and quote um, Carmen Reinhardt, uh, who said that the lesson of history is that even if institutions and, 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 uh, and policymakers improve, 
they're always tempted to stretch the limits. Some governments, maybe because of elections, maybe because they want to keep unemployment low, they, they may be tempted to stretch the limits, to push interest rates lower, yeah. to increase QE even more, to do yield curve control, to go into more negative territory. And even a small rise in inflation means that you're going to get negative returns on your savings. If you're invested in treasuries, if you're invested in deals in the UK or, or euro sovereign debt. So I'm not so worried about you know the euro breakup risk, but I am worried if, if I'm holding BTPs at 1%, or if I'm holding treasuries at 1%, I'm, I'm worried about inflation going to 2 or 3 Alberto, given the fact that central bankers have been pushing the limit, how much are you expecting the ECB to start buying high-yield debt the way that the Federal Reserve has, and in order to do uh, to sort of profit from that, buying high-yield credit in Europe ahead of that? So this is a race to the bottom with every central bank and every government trying to um, essentially do more stimulus to safeguard the industrial infrastructure uh, in each respective economy. So the U.S. Uh, and the U.K. have already moved pretty aggressively. The ECB has an internal conflict because some countries want to do more and some don't want to do more. What they can do in addition, as you said, is they could buy double B-rated bonds, fallen angels in the high-yield space, or they could increase the envelope of the TLTRO or uh, enlarge the tiering, the difference between the rates the negative rates that banks are receiving versus uh, the, the, the deposit rate uh, of the TLTRO, essentially giving more money to banks. I think these two are not a base case for today, but they are a put option. They are a possibility if things get worse in the second half. Alberto, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Always great to have you on a day like today. Alberto Gala there of Algebris Investments. Julia Coronados with Macro Policy Perspectives, her acclaim out of University of Texas, Austin, was the economy. She was at Barclays and BMP Paribas, where she absolutely nailed the slowness of GDP that was to come. With Macro Policy Perspectives, she joins us this morning. Dr. Coronado, let's go back to that moment where you nailed the GDP growth that didn't happen. Are we falling into that trap again? We're certainly at danger of it. I mean, the, the Fed has done a pretty good job disconnecting markets from the economic distress we're experiencing, which prevents the sort of debt deleveraging that we were starting to see in March. And it was that balance sheet drag that really uh, was the constraint on the recovery last time around. Now, we don't have over-leveraged consumers. That's definitely a, a benefit. We also don't have banks that are in uh, distress or having solvency questions, and that's also a huge benefit. But we do have a deeper fundamental hole in the economy and just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. So there is still lots of need for support to get the economy through this and to minimize the structural damage and the frictions that can result if this just drags on and on and we don't get some clarity on the virus. Dr. Coronado, tell us about the rates of change, the dynamics value of something like jobless claims right now. Is that statistic that we see here, and I believe it's 10 minutes, that statistic, is it a value to you? Oh, tremendous value. I mean, the, the fact that jobless claims are still so historically elevated tells us that there's just incredible churn in the labor market. We have not settled down. We have not gotten back to normal. Yes, we've had a couple of surprisingly good job reports, but this is mostly about 
people reconnecting to their employers uh, as some reopenings happen. But we see now that those reopenings were too early. Uh, it's very fragile. Uh, and uh, the outlook for the economy could t take a turn for the worse again, given that we're seeing increased restrictions in the states where the virus has really taken off. So Ju the go well, ahead. Sorry. Lisa. No, no. Uh, Julia, yesterday, American Air said that they might lay off or are likely going to lay off 25,000 employees when the fiscal support runs out. This raises a question. Was the fiscal support worth it? Did it just prolong the inevitable by keeping people on the payroll in theory, but not in actuality, to Tom's point of what is the meaning of furlough? What's your view on that? Well, I think that the, the design was good. The idea was that this was a temporary stop that we needed to put on the economy as we put the structure in place to manage the virus, as we dampened the spread and then put the structures in place to manage it going forward. We have squandered that opportunity as a nation. Some states have done better than others, uh, but um, the design and the intention was, I think, well thought out. Uh, the actuality is that as one, we again, we reopened way too soon. We're not going back to normal. We haven't gotten the virus under control. So these companies are now starting to hunker down for a longer, more protracted recovery. Uh, and so they have to right size their businesses. So it wasn't the fault of the stimulus, it was the fault of the public health response and the impatience uh, amongst a lot of very large states. Uh, that has led to uh, this situation where we're now seeing more permanent lasting separations uh, and reductions in force. This is so important. And as we wait for these claims data, the initial jobless claims uh, that we're going to be getting soon, what are you looking for to indicate the scope, the depth of that second wave of layoffs that already has begun? So um, one, we look at the initial claims, um, both the regular and the pandemic uh, program for gig economy workers, just how many new filings are there. And then we look at continuing claims, which gives us a better sense of on net how many people are leaving uh, the roles of unemployment and returning to work. Uh, and that gives us a sense of, of what might be happening on the hiring side of the ledger. Um, so we haven't seen as much. There's been a little bit of a disconnect between claims and payrolls. Payrolls show a bit more reconnection than claims show. Uh, there's a lot of noise in the data. There's uh, you know, on both sides, both for payrolls and for claims, you know, triangulating the whole picture, though, we still do have a very elevated level of unemployment. And that return that we were starting to see a very nice dynamic is at risk. And claims is weird. You know, it's timely. We get it every week. So that gives us a real time read on how this resurgence in the virus is impacting the labor market. Julia, brilliant to see you. Julia Coronado there of Macro Policy Perspectives. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.